It is so wonderful to be back with all of you at Servants of Christ and to see how spectacular your little space is becoming more and more beautiful every time we come back. I looked at my sermon notes. I do keep track of what I say to try not to repeat myself too often. And I realized I, we made our first annual visit in 2014. And so this is now eight times. And... Uh, we look forward to it, and we're so grateful to Jody and to Alex for your friendship and for your gracious hospitality. Now, how many of you have made New Year resolutions? Hmm? No, no, we've got some. Now, Jody's made one, she's not told you about, but she has made a New Year resolution never to go to Pittsburgh in the winter. Okay, okay. Never, ever. Okay, it was a nightmare. Don't, don't have a few minutes when you talk to her about it because it was horrendous, especially West Virginia in the ice and snow and all that stuff. So thank God you live in Gainesville. Anybody else made a New Year resolution that you'd be willing to share with us? Hmm, a little bashful, but I've got some help for you. I consulted a well-known uh, journal of philosophy called the Magazine of Country Living, uh, which I suspect you all are familiar with. Um, and here is the top 10 New Year resolutions. Number one, lose weight. Hmm? Number two, eat healthier or change diet. Number three, get fitter and take more exercise. Number four, spend more time with family and friends. Number five, be more aware and take care of mental health. Number six, I think related to number five, sort out finances and cut back spending. Uh, number seven, travel more. Eight, take up a new hobby, sport or other interest. Nine, be more environmentally friendly. And number 10, look for a new job. Now, I mean, they're all worthwhile goals in themselves, but I must confess that in reading the list, I thought they're all a little bit self-serving, shall we say. So, let me suggest to you another resolution, which I commend to you, that comes from our gospel lesson. And that is our aim for 22, is to live a life that pleases God. How about that? Would that be a resolution that's worth taking on? Anyway, a life that pleases God. I didn't come up with this on my own. It's a phrase that is an echo of the declaration at the end of our gospel lesson. And let me read it again beginning at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now there's a whole sermon in that, but I won't stop there. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What an amazing moment. Until this point, Jesus had lived a pretty quiet life. I mean, there's, we have one story when he went to the temple as a 12-year-old, but basically, it was pretty quiet. Likely, we don't really know, but he worked alongside his father in the carpentry business, which was more than fine woodwork, by the way. It was really house building. I mean, they didn't just make nice cabinets, but it was really a serious construction job. So Jesus was most likely not a wimp. Um, 
Uh, not that there's anything wrong with wimps, if any of you consider yourself wimps. But um, he also clearly spent his time studying scripture. He was a good Jewish boy, and so he really invested in knowing the scriptures. But now he's about to begin the public phase of his ministry. And so he does so with this heavenly father's commendation ringing in his ears. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And it's this commendation I want to reflect on as we enter into this new year. Imagine how excited we would be if the Father was to declare from the heavens, servants of Christ, you are my people whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, would not that get you going? I mean, you would be jumping. And I really do want to challenge you to take this seriously. What does it look like for you to live a life that pleases God? So to answer that question, we need to go back to Jesus because he's not only our Lord and Savior, but he's also our example. I'm sure you all know that when you call yourself a Christian, you're not just calling yourself a nice person. I hope you are, but that's not the sum of it. To be called a Christian literally means to be a little Christ, that our lives are to reflect his life into the world. Our lives are to be like his, our values like his. So what did Jesus do that so pleased the Father? Well, the the first public actions recorded in Scripture after his baptism took place at the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus was invited to read the Scripture lesson for the day, and he read a portion from the prophet Isaiah. Now, they had scrolls. They didn't have books like we do, but they would read the scroll. And the portion he read from was pretty close to what we read this morning. A portion from Isaiah. It reads this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. After he read that, he sat down and began to reflect on it. But in many ways, that is an outline for a life that pleases God. And notice that it begins with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. See, the truth is we cannot live a life that pleases God unless we have the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. On our own strength, it is simply too much. Even if we have the very best intentions, it will simply fade away just like the rest of our New Year resolutions. Now, growing up as a Baptist in England, by the way, you did pick up, I grew up in England, some of you. Um, To my ear, my accent is completely American. But... That's my ear that's got confused. But as a Baptist in England, I didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. We're a great little Baptist church. We did occasionally mention the Holy Ghost at the end of our formal prayers, as in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But nobody really believes in ghosts, holy or otherwise. See, our version of Christianity was simply love Jesus and try harder. The Holy Spirit was simply not in the picture. And that's still true for so many people today. 
Now, when Angela and I, by the way, you've met Angela at the front, sitting next to Jody. She's my beautiful wife. We've been married how many years, darling? Rachel, how many years? 57 years, I tell you. We're going on for 58 this year, and we, it gets better. Well, 54 years ago, uh, she was courageous and allowed me to lead her astray from England to the United States. And we landed, and then we moved to live in a little town called Darien, a small town in Connecticut, because my job was in New York City. And we joined the local church, uh, St. Paul's Episcopal Church. It was a lively church and involved in something called the Charismatic Renewal. Now, some of you older folks may remember that. Uh, it was a little while back. It all made me rather nervous. It all seemed a little too emotional for someone who treasured his stiff upper lip. But there were a loving congregation who had welcomed us into their community, and so I decided to put up with it. When the new rector came, a man called Terry Fulham, he talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. And what he said actually made sense. He pointed out that the early church did remarkable things, such as seeing 3,000 people converted in one day and taking on the mighty Roman Empire precisely because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he even claimed that if we want to live a normal Christian life with the signs and wonders that the New Testament describes, we can only do so if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he when I challenged him, which of course I love to do, uh, he replied, you have been living a subnormal Christian life for so long that if you ever became normal, it would seem abnormal. Let me say it again, because it's actually worth thinking about. I think all of us have been living a subnormal Christian life for so long if it ever became normal, it would seem abnormal. And I thought about it for a long time because he really challenged me. And I admitted that by the standards of the New Testament, not by the folks around me, which is always easy, but by the standards of the New Testament, my Christian life and witness was decidedly subpar. My prayer life was hard work. I didn't particularly like many of the people in the church who claimed to be spirit-filled. It made me nervous. I hadn't seen many miracles, and I could only think of a handful of folks with whom I had ever shared the good news of the gospel. I was not doing well. And so one Christmas Eve, between services, I knelt at the altar rail at St. Paul's Church, and I told the Lord I needed help. I admitted that my Christian life was decidedly subnormal and I asked him to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And then I knelt and waited. I didn't know what to expect. I was hoping for at least a bit of vibration on the windows or maybe the fire would fall or something or doves would come flying around. But the wind didn't flow and the fire didn't fall. But God did begin a new work on me from the inside out. I noticed that I had a greater sense of, of peace than ever before. And I was more confident of God's call and God's purpose in my life. Now, I used to read the lessons in the church. And one morning, a dear lady came up to me and said, you know, there's something different about you today. You read the Bible like you really believe it. Now, 
while I didn't fully appreciate the kind of backhanded compliment about that, she was right. God was at work with me. But I still struggled with my prayer life, and I hadn't seen any signs of wonders. A few months later, Terry invited me to join a small group of parishioners who were going to visit Grace Church in Old Saybrook, which is kind of up the coast, for a weekend mission, a teaching mission. Terry would do the formal teaching things, and we would be there to pray, to help out, and to give our testimonies. Now, Old Saybrook was on the same commuter line that I was on, that I used, and so that, I just stayed on the train a bit longer, and then that Friday evening, I arrived late after the first session, when everybody was already moved into the parish hall for discussions. And so I went into the church and just sort of sat on my own in the church to gather my thoughts. And the first thing I did was complain. It had been a miserable week. I was tired. I didn't know why I'd agreed to come. I didn't like all the other members of the team. They're far too happy, clappy for me. And so I complained to God. It is, by the way, an ancient biblical practice, complaining to God. Uh, read the psalmist. He loved to complain. But after a few minutes, as I knelt there, I realized that I was praying, but in a different language. A language that I'd never actually learned. And yet it felt very natural and easy. And as I prayed in this new way, I began to feel that I was being energized and my burdens were kind of being lifted. I felt so good, I wasn't sure I actually wanted to stop. But eventually I did and then headed over to the parish hall where everybody else was still meeting. And to my surprise, I actually felt better about the people there. They weren't as bad after all. And then I realized that God had actually answered my prayers in a way I'd never expected. God had given me a new way of praying. He's got various names, praying in tongues, praying in the spirit. God had also given me a greater awareness of his presence and his call upon my own life. And God is still at work in me. See, Jesus has promised that anyone who asks for the Holy Spirit will never be refused. Let me say that again because a lot of folks get nervous. Jesus has promised, and you can always count on Jesus' promises, that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, you will never be refused. But there is one condition. He will not give us his power if we want to do our own thing. There's a marvelous story in the book of Acts about a man who wanted the power of the Holy Spirit to impress his friends. He kind of liked seeing folks doing miracles. He said, I'd like that. He even offered to pay money. But the apostle Peter quickly put him right. One translation, which I rather like, records Peter's response as, to hell with you and your money for thinking that you can buy God's gift with money. He quickly learned that the power of God is only given to those who are willing to live for the purpose of God. First, he had to choose to live for the glory of God, and then he will be given the power to do it. And it's the same for you and me. If you want to live a life that pleases God, the first step is to choose to follow him. To choose to live your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then you can ask for the power to do it.
Now let's look at the purpose of the Christian life. Let's consider that description that Jesus gives. Actually it's from Isaiah, but Jesus sort of repeats it and kind of strains it out a bit. One line at a time. The first, because he has anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news to the poor. The first aspect of this purpose that God gives us after we've been filled with the power of the Spirit is to preach, to proclaim good news to the poor. Now the truth of it is we're all called to share the good news of God's love. And for some, I think, amazing trust from God, that's his primary way to get the good news out. It's through people like you and me. Now, if it had been me, I wouldn't have trusted me. I'd have written it in the heavens, you know. God loves you. Well, at least send a, you know, a big email to everybody. But, but he's actually trusted that you and I will be the ones that take the good news of the gospel to every person in the rest of the world. That's a huge risk. Because many of us don't do it. But that's God's preferred way. That we, if we want to live a life that, to the purpose of God, we need to be willing to share the good news of the gospel of God's love with those around us. Now, my wife, Angela, is a natural at this. She can just start conversations with total strangers, and within minutes, she's talking with them about their faith and often praying for them. Takes about five minutes. I can't do that. I'm learning, slowly, slowly. But it is in those one-on-one -on -one conversations that we're able to share the good news of the gospel. You can't just throw books at people, you know, send them tapes, tell them to go to a seminar. It really comes down to one person telling another. Or as one person said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It really is that basic. Now, notice at the end of that little phrase, it's good news to the poor. Who exactly are the poor? Well, at its simplest meaning, it points to those who are in financial need, those who haven't got anything. And if God can be described as having any prejudice, then it seems clear that he has a special love for the poor. And he expects us to do the same. And to share that love. Now we all tend to react against the poor. In fact, sometimes we even blame them. But Jesus never does. But I think it's not just financial poverty he's speaking of here. I believe that there is a poverty of spirit that is just as real and just as desperate. People may have enough money, but without a relationship with the living God, they are impoverished. And God calls us to proclaim good news to the poor. First step for a life that pleases God. Spread the good news. Second, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. At the time of Jesus, there, as there are today, there were many people who were held captive. Some were behind bars, but many were captives in prisons without bars. 
They were captives to fear, resentment, hatred of the oppressive systems that they lived under. They were captive to the fear of what the future might hold. And frankly, a lot of folks are today. I've never seen so much fear about the future. Jesus came to proclaim that you are now set free from that. And we are to share in this ministry of setting people free. Whatever holds people in bondage has been overcome in Christ. And we're all to share that freedom. You know, one of the most insidious forms of bondage that holds many people captive today is chemical dependency. All kinds of drugs, you know, opioids. I mean, it's a terrible thing that that's done to the nation. Alcohol. And sometimes this bondage goes from generation to generation. One of the most effective tools that I've come across is the 12-step recovery program, the heart of many wonderful ministries for all kinds of addictions. But frankly, it doesn't matter what holds people captive. Jesus came to set them free. And we're to share in that vital ministry. Next was and recovering of sight to the blind. And again, we can take this at this very literal meaning. There are many specific illustrations of Jesus healing people who are actually blind. And we're to share, as I know you all do, in healing ministry. Angela and I have witnessed many remarkable healings. One of my favorites was with a woman who was a member of our church in Lafayette, Louisiana. She was suffering from a type of macular degeneration that had already left her blind in one eye and she was quickly losing sight in the other. She was married with three children and a good husband, but he worked for the oil industry 30 days out on a rig and then 30 days back home. So you can imagine the fear that she was struggling with as she began to think of what life would look like when she was totally blind. But being a very creative, hardworking lady, she decided to teach herself Braille so that when she lost sight in the other eye, she'd still be able to you know, read and figure out where things were. I went to visit her one time in hospital, just she's having another treatment of some sort. And I did as I always do. I prayed for her. I anointed with oil and asked God to heal her. But to be honest, I wasn't exactly hopeful. The next Sunday, she showed up at church with her kids. He, her husband was offshore. And on her way in, she just kind of, just coming through the door, she said to me, could I read the scriptures today? Which kind of took me back a little, but I thought, well, she's got, maybe still got enough to see. I said, Sure. But when it came time, he came up to the lectern, gave us all a big smile, and said, once I was blind, but now I can see she had been healed completely. And then she read the scriptures simply to prove it. And after she finished, we did not have a polite Anglican response. We all just stood up and cheered. We'd seen it right in front of us. And God has called us to set those who are blind, not just blind physically, I believe that's important. But also blind to the things of God. 
blind to the wonders of his creation, blind to his love for every person. He said we get put off by the externals. Next, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. A life that pleases God is a life that has a zeal for justice and a compassion for those who are oppressed. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about those who oppressed others. You may remember his treatment of the oppressive money changers in the temple courtyard and the Pharisees who impose heavy burdens on the Jewish people. Friends, there is still plenty of injustice in the world. And millions of people are living under oppressive circumstances. And we're called to do what we can to set them at liberty. And this may be through social action. It may be working within the political arena. But it must all be rooted and grounded in prayer, seeking God's direction. And so many Christians, good intentioned, fail in their efforts because they have acted without a foundation of prayer. But there's another oppression that comes from being separate from the source of all, of all real freedom. And that is the oppression that comes from living in spiritual darkness, which leads to the last element of this brief description of the purpose of a life that pleases God. And it sounds a bit obscure, but listen to it. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that takes us full circle because the acceptable year of the Lord's favor is the good news of God's love and acceptance of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Which is radical news. No longer are we condemned to live in darkness, but now we have all been given the opportunity to come into the light. And without his love, we are oppressed and lost. But with his love, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And the most exciting challenge before all of us is to take this message to the entire world, starting right here. I love that particular phrase which says, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem to start. You know, Jerusalem means right here, where you live the person who lives next door to you, the person who served you gas at the gas station, the helper in the, the restaurant, the server there. I'll tell you a quick story about that. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, a man called John Rogers. Uh, John is a retired professor of systematic theology uh, at initially at Virginia Seminary, but then he was the founding dean of Trinity School for Ministry. And John is a brilliant man. He and his wife Blanche were gracious friends of ours and we love to go to their home. And uh, John's written books on systematic theology and I can't even pronounce some of the titles, uh, but he knows his stuff. So Angela and I and Rachel went to visit him. Uh, he's now 91, his wife Blanche, his beloved wife Blanche died last year and so he's living alone uh, near where we're working in Pittsburgh. I'm now, I think, did you mention, I think you did, that I've, I've got this new job. I'm sort of retired, but there's no real retirement, as you know. I'm now the interim bishop of Pittsburgh, and, uh, which keeps me out of, out of trouble, sort of. 
Um, so I went to visit John and uh, he said, let's go for lunch. And John said, sure, I'll drive and you can take your car. Which I was thinking he didn't want me to drive him. In 91, you know, a little decrepit. Not indeed. He was, didn't trust my driving one bit. And so we went uh, to that wonderful chain of restaurants up in that part of the world called Eaton Park. It should really be park and eat grammatically, you know, but it's called Eaton Park. And it's not Eaton, which I thought it was, you know, as in England, E-T-O-N. It's E-A-T apostrophe N. So it's a little tacky. Um, so I went there and we sat down for lunch, for, for lunch and along comes a waitress. I think her name was Laura. And Laura took our order. And then John turned to her with a big smile and said, Laura, we'd, we like to pray before we eat our meal and we also like to pray for the person who's serving us. Can we pray for you? Is there anything in your life which we could, we could be praying? And he did it with such genuineness that she looked at him and said, well, my granny just died and I'm really missing her. And you could see she was kind of getting a bit teary. And so John had the sweetest prayer, praying for Laura, for, for her granny and for the sadness. And you can almost see her kind of melt as she's kind of standing there. And I thought, why can't I just do it that way? But John has always been that. I remember when I was a student, he did the same thing. His love for the people of, around him and his love for God just kind of met in a way that was so genuine and gracious. And of course, you can imagine, she did not, she stayed around our table quite a lot because she knew that, she, that was, we were people that loved her. It's not that difficult, folks. You need to practice. You need to challenge each other to share that good news. So, if you want to live a life that pleases God, if you want to make that your New Year resolution for 2022, the power is available. You've got to ask. The purpose is clear. Let me go through it again. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I realize that's more than most of us can take on. So I want you to pray, particularly as you read that text again, which particular part is God calling you to take on? The harvest is plentiful. There's a desperate need for good news today. But sadly, the laborers are few. Pray. You might be one. You'll hear an amen? amen. Well, let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I bless you. As we begin this new year together, that you would allow us to dedicate ourselves to living a life that pleases God, not just individually, but corporately, that this church would live a life that pleases God. Give us that power that we desperately need, the power of your Holy Spirit. And make clear to each one of us which particular aspect of this purpose that we've explored today is your call in our lives. 
And all this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.